You're listening to The Story Connective. In this episode, we talk with Jenny Pell. Jenny is a permaculture consultant, designer, and educator who has helped write a vision for agriculture in the Central Valley of Maui that's not just sustainable, but regenerative, with a focus on local food and business. How do we cultivate ourselves, our families, our communities, our farms, our skill sets, our whole culture in a way that lets us live in a way that's in balance. Welcome to the Story Connective. I'm Rebecca Rhapsody. And I'm Loxie Clovis. The Story Connective is dedicated to documenting and sharing inspiring stories of possibility, resilience, and cooperation. This episode is one of a series called Re-Envision Maui about an ongoing transition on the island of Maui, Hawaii. If you would like more background on this series, we suggest you check out the episode entitled Re-Envision Maui Before and After Sugar. In this episode, we are excited to have Ginny Pell with us as our guest. She is one of the principal authors of Maui Tomorrow Foundation's Malama Aina Report. The focus of Maui Tomorrow Foundation is protecting Maui's future. The Malama Aina Report offers a comprehensive look at how to transition from large-scale monoculture sugarcane to diversified organic farming that prioritizes local food, generates profitable farm businesses and jobs for locals, and stewards the land for future generations. This report is freely available online for anyone to read. Jenny Pell founded the Permaculture Guild of Maui, is a board member of the Hawaii Farmers Union United, and is now focused on developing a comprehensive food hub to serve local farmers and consumers. Ginny recently became a partner at Permaculture Design International. She was also instrumental in designing the now-famous edible food forest grown on public park land in Beacon Hill, Seattle. Ginny has dedicated her career to helping her diverse clients be a part of a resilient and abundant future. We are really inspired by Jenny's work and hope you will be too. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. So historically, Hawaii was an extremely food abundant and self-sufficient island chain for centuries. Maui Tomorrow's Malama Aina report points out that Maui's Central Valley once had perennial streams which were free-flowing until the advent of large-scale grazing and logging on upper slopes. Native Hawaiians traditionally lived around flowing water in sophisticated regenerative farming and aquaculture systems called ahupua'a. The Maui Island Plan Policy reads, all present and future watershed management plans shall incorporate concepts of ahupua'a management based on the interconnectedness of upland and coastal ecosystems and species. Can you talk about Ahupua'a and what modern farmers and food systems students can learn from these ancient sustainable systems? Yeah, what was really great about the traditional Hawaiian methods of farming and aquaculture is that they used all of the different microclimates from the coasts all the way to the tops of the mountains. So within that, you have deep sea fishing, you have small fish nurseries at the edge that they could easily harvest fish from. Up from there, they had in the stream watersheds, 
They had the lo'i, which is the taro farming. They farmed chickens, dogs, pigs. And as they moved up the hills, they had other crops that all came across on the canoe. So they had 22 canoe plants that were foods and fibers and fuels and all different kinds of things. So they had textiles and foods all managed within a moku system. So the, the island is divided into sort of pie-shaped wedges that go makai, mako makai, which is from the top of the mountain down to the ocean. In that system that were managed by extended ohana, or sort of clans, maybe it's a good word for that, uh, they had their own uh, family governance systems, etc. Once a year during the Makahiki, the king would go on the king's road around the outside of the island and take tribute from each moku, kind of a tax collection system. Part of that was also checking in to see if each moku was able to feed its people. So the abundance of that moku would be evident in the tribute that was given to the king and they would keep track of how they were doing in their individual mokus. The central valley of Maui receives about 10 to 15, 16 inches of rain a year. So yes, if the uh, modern agriculture hadn't come to Maui, that system would still have seasonal, maybe perennial streams. It wasn't a farmed area from what we can tell historically. Most Hawaiians did not live in that area, although there were lots of endangered species now, the nene goose and other things there, but that was not a traditionally harvested, large harvested area. That said, all across the islands, we supported over a million people, the islands supported over a million people in that system. There was plenty of food to go around. Attorney General of Hawaii, Edmund Pearson Dole, referring to the Big Five Sugarcane Processing Corporations, which included Alexander and Baldwin A and B, said in 1903, quote, there is a government in this territory which is centralized to an extent unknown in the United States and probably almost as centralized as it was in France under Louis XIV. What is the Western and Eastern agricultural history of Maui and Maui's Valley? When the first white people came to the islands, they came uh, as whalers and then shortly after came as missionaries. Many of those people decided to settle on Maui and very quickly started to look at agricultural commodity crops. The one that they settled on as the most profitable was sugarcane. What ensued from there was a very complex system of acquiring all the land and acquiring control of the water to feed those crops. Sugarcane is one of the thirstiest crops on the planet. And while you have in the Central Valley the perfect aspect, which is the right, you know, direction pointing towards the sun, they didn't have enough water. So they built an incredibly sophisticated ditch system which took the water from traditional farming on the east side of the island and carried it across into the Central Valley where they've been using upwards of 167 million gallons a day. Completely interrupted and stopped traditional farming on the eastern flank of Maui, for example. Sugarcane was extremely profitable but it needed a very large labor force. So the uh, plantation owners started to bring in Chinese, Japanese, Filipino uh, slave labor, plantation laborers, which they then segregated into uh, very specific villages and camps according to ethnicity. Those groups, of course, brought their own agriculture with them. So you have the whole range of Asian crops, the whole range of European crops, 
and those traditional farming methods that come in. If you wander around old neighborhoods of Maui, you can pick out a Filipino backyard in a minute because you'll see Filipino-style farming going on in backyards. Most of their children don't want to farm anymore, so those skills, those gardens are being lost to us too very quickly in this generation. So the history of um, consolidation of land, owning the land, owning the control of the water, and now feeding a diverse population that has diverse food interests, that's the history of the last 150 years of agriculture on Maui. Now that we have a very large diverse population and a very huge tourist industry, we import 96% of our food on Maui. And uh, very, very little farming is going on. No. Sugarcane production ended on Maui last year, 2016. What would you like to see happen to the valley and to Maui post-sugarcane? I think that this is one of the most exciting opportunities in the world for transitioning out of corporate-owned chemical commodity crops for exports and moving very rapidly into food security, food sovereignty, uh, all, all that comes with food sovereignty, which is your right to culturally appropriate foods to grow and to, and to eat them. We now have a year-round population of 150,000 people that are year-round residents, and then our tourist population is about 2.6 million. That comes to, let's say, about 250,000 people a year to feed on this island. It's just not that many people. So when I look at the equation of food security on the island where you're 2,000 miles from anyone in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, considering the diversity of crops that can grow here, which is stunning because of the microclimates that go from a tropical uh, lowland all the way up to a very cool, cold, highland up in the mountain climate, we can grow you know, pineapples and bananas and coconuts, and then we can also grow apples and peaches and potatoes and cauliflower and onions, and it all grows here. So the commitment to local food, I think, needs to be central. What we're learning now is that farmers who are involved in conventional ag, where they're using lots of chemicals, and they're doing monoculture, and they've stripped the soil resources, and they've narrowed their skill base from a diversified ag into a very you know, specific one type of crop, there is no blueprint to transition out of that into a profitable, diversified agriculture that's organic. So Maui has an opportunity to set that table, where we can go from very few farmers that even know how to farm to a thriving, resilient, diverse agriculture that not only feeds our local citizens, really feeds our tourist industry, and is plenty left over for export, which is profitable as well. For those that aren't familiar with agriculture terminology, could you define commodity crop and monoculture? Yeah, so a, a monoculture is when you have one crop that you're growing. So sugarcane is a perfect example. We had 36,000 acres in sugarcane, one crop of sugarcane. Now the risks inherent in monocropping is that it's incredibly vulnerable to pest infestation. So if you're using pesticides, then the plant becomes predated on significantly, and then you have to use more and more chemical pesticides to combat those pests. It also makes you very vulnerable to commodity crop prices internationally. So when you have more countries getting involved in sugarcane, 
they can undercut the price of Maui sugar, which has a higher wage rate, a huge export cost. Uh, I think the year that we wrote the report, they had a $35 million loss that year, expected to double the next year. So this is, it's not that they got out of sugarcane farming because they felt like doing something else. They were tanking financially. And so this is a you know, huge motivation to get out of it. Uh, I've been working in Belize. They just put in 22,000 acres in sugarcane. You can't compete with a dollar fifty an hour wage. You just can't. You know, so that's what monoculture is. So a commodity crop is a crop that is traded on the world market. So a commodity could be anything from cotton to wheat to sugar to corn. Those are all commodity crops. Standard diversified agriculture is both perennial and annual. So the perennial crops are tree crops that grow year after year. Annual crops are row crops, which are carrots and onions and cucumbers and things like that that you plant each year. So in a diversified agriculture, you're growing a whole many varieties of crops and you're often letting fields sit fallow to regenerate after the soil has been depleted. So you have a strategy that builds farm resilience as you go. Diversified agriculture has become a buzzword lately. There's been talk recently about diversified agriculture on Maui. According to Hawaii News Now, A&B subsidiary Hawaiian Commercial and Sugar Company, HCNS, says it will instead pursue a diversified agriculture model at its 36,000 acre plantation on Maui. Mm -hmm. The new diversified model, which A&B says will take years to fully implement, involves dividing the Maui plantation into smaller farms with a variety of uses, including energy crops, food crops, support for the local cattle industry, and developing an agricultural park of small plot leases to HCNS employees. Maui County Mayor Alan Arakawa said, quote, Still, we knew that this day was inevitable. HCNS, for years now, has planted crop after crop to see what they could use to replace sugarcane, and they have kept my office informed every step of the way. Fruit trees, taro, biomass, papayas, avocados, and much more have all gone through trial testing, leaving us very confident that while sugarcane is dead, agriculture will remain very much alive here, end quote. What's your take on this plan for HCNS, the subsidiary of A&B, to transition to what they call diversified agriculture? Well, as a permaculturalist, I'm really committed to organic food. Diversified ag does not commit to that in any way. So my first question back to A&B and HCNS is, will you commit to an organic agriculture here on Maui? The amount of chemicals that they use here is stunning, and it has led to serious controversy within the community. That also includes planting of genetically modified test crops, and uh, all across the islands we are what they call ground zero for GMO seed testing. I won't go into that at this question. So my concern with A and B and HCNS is that most of these decisions have been conducted behind closed doors. There's very, very little transparency, and as much as we beg and plead and ask to sit at that table, we're not allowed. Alan Arakawa is uh, very hostile towards organic agriculture, and he does not favor it and is not interested. So that's a challenge coming from the mayor's office. I think it's great that Maui is committing on paper 
to a diversified ag that's going to include many different crops that will serve the people of Maui and also profitable export markets. But I do not believe that in that statement is a commitment to the type of agriculture that we'd like to see happen in its fullness. So moving to the future, Albert Perez of the Maui Tomorrow Foundation said, quote, as a result, we have been doing research on alternative sustainable agriculture uses for the land that would employ thousands of people, help the Aina to recover from decades of chemical agriculture, provide Maui with sustainably grown food and fuel to keep central Maui green, end quote. What's the significance of Maui Tomorrow's Malama Aina Regenerative Soil Building Agriculture Report, and what would its implementation look like? The first things that need to happen on the sugarcane lands is the soil remediation. So after decades and decades of monoculture and massive application of chemicals, the soil needs a rest. The microbial action in that soil, I'm assuming, is extremely low, if non-existent. Um, I've even heard stories of people having to jackhammer the soil to be able to plant stuff. The soil is pow. So the soil is really, it needs a serious strategy for regeneration. There's lots of really excellent ways to do that. It starts with having to test the soils. So uh, being able to get on the land and go across the land in a very, you know, there's a, a very particular gridded out method for taking soil samples and testing those soils and understanding what we're up against. So the soil remediation strategies will have a lot to do with what those tests show. And then from there, we look at everything from cover cropping to micro-remediation with fungi to uh, planting green manures. There's all kinds of ways that we remediate the soil depending on what we learn. You have to invest in that. The permaculture strategies of looking at an integrated, regenerative type of farming where you understand the baseline of what the soils are telling you, and then of course we have to look at very diverse strategies for harvesting water across that landscape. So what we recommend in the report, for example, is terracing on swales on contour that come that have um, tree crops interplanted with all kinds of things while those tree crops are maturing. The challenge with perennial crops starting out as a farmer is that you have a lag time between planting the time by the time you harvest your fruits. So you can use that time and space in a succession to grow other crops that you can sell. A and B, or HCNS sugar, on 36,000 acres employed 675 people. That's a travesty. That's not farming. Most of those people worked in the mill and the lowest paid worker were the planters. So the planting men, mostly men and some women, would basically go out and just plant sugarcane as far as the eye can see. They don't know soil, they don't know weather, they don't know pests, they just know how to plant sugar. They really are limited in their farming knowledge. They're not farmers, they're sugarcane planters. So taking that staff, I would say a fraction of those 675 workers would want to be farmers in all that that entails. Like all across the United States, Maui's average age of farmers is over 60. We have a severe lack of young farmers that know how to farm and understand farming. So training up the next generation of farmers is also inherent in this design challenge. 
Could you go into a little more detail about Swales on Contour for those who aren't familiar with earthworks? Yeah, so a, a ditch, when you dig a ditch, it's the point is to drain water off the land. When you build a swale, you put it, it looks like a ditch, on contour. And so rather than when the water comes, when it rains, the water comes sheeting across the landscape into the lowest point where it aggregates and then flows away, when you put swales on contour, the water comes down and fills that swale, and then it goes to the, you know, and fills the next one, and that water will slowly infiltrate into the soil, which actually recharges that soil. It's very different depending on what the bedrock is. Of course, we have very porous soils here because it's a volcanic area, uh, but there's lots of ways that you can design those swales with the goal of infiltrating water across the landscape. It also involves um, planting deep-rooted things like vetivers on those swales that have huge, uh, you know, multi-feet uh, roots that go down that also help to control erosion. So swales is a, it's a combination of water harvesting strategy, erosion control, and also building soil over time in order to grow crops with less need for irrigation. There are claims that few crops can withstand the winds of Maui's central plain. How would permaculture handle the valley wind? In the Malama Aina report, we have a whole section on windbreaks. And uh, that's a really important thing to look at in terms of the farming strategy here. The windbreaks can serve multi-functions. This is sort of a permaculture, one of the you know, core permaculture strategies is... Uh, you know, one element serving many functions. So the windbreak would also be generating biomass, it would be filtering the air, it would be uh, slowing the winds down, it would be building soil tilth, it could have nitrogen-fixing trees. You can do all kinds of things within a windbreak that are beneficial to the farm. So the windbreak strategy is absolutely key to this. It also reduces your water needs. It also has less stress on the plants when you have less wind. So, yeah, so the combination of the swales, the erosion control, and the windbreaks are all part of the overall permaculture design that allows the farm to be more resilient and productive. Then I just want to add something also about the number of employees. Yes. So, again, on 36,000 acres, HCNS employed 675 workers, mostly within the factory, the sugarcane factory itself. When I look at the number of people that can be employed on 36,000 acres doing real farming, all different kinds of farming, I mean, doubling it isn't, doesn't even start. So the opportunity for farm jobs in their fullness on Maui, it's a pretty stunning economic generating, you know, income generating prospect. Could you talk more about what is a nitrogen-fixing plant and why is it important in regenerative ag? So we need to have nitrogen in the soil. It's not that naturally occurring. So by interplanting or integrating nitrogen-fixing plants into your farm strategy, you have um, on the roots of the nitrogen-fixing plant are bacteria that have a symbiotic relationship with uh, an ability to release nitrogen into the soil. So we look at um, ground covers and tree crops and, uh, and uh, shrubs and all different things that actually will help us to fix nitrogen in the soil. When nitrogen gets in the soil, it's soluble. So when it rains, it easily washes through. 
So you have to have a consistent strategy of adding nitrogen into the soil. And so nitrogen-fixing plants is one of the main ways to do that. Otherwise, you have to add nitrogen from an external input that's going to be chemically based or from a non-renewable resource. The Malama INET report asserts that sugarcane, quote, could be used as the fuel to feed the transition to regenerative agriculture, end quote. How could sugarcane become more valuable converted to soil carbon and animal protein as opposed to sucrose? Well, sugarcane turns out is a rock star of a plant. So in the soil remediation end of things, it's a sugar, it's a sugarcane. So the enzymes that come, the sugary enzymes that are in the root system feeds the soil. So every single root tip of any plant has millions of bacteria at each root tip. When that root tip is a sugary feeder into the soil, the bacteria multiply very quickly. So leaving the sugarcane without chemicals on it is one way to just feed the soil very quickly. It turns out that cattle love sugarcane. So when you are looking at a regen sugar, so right now what you're seeing on Maui is um, those fields aren't just bare that they harvested. You know, two, three, four, six months later, the remnants of sugarcane are regrowing. So you can just use that regenerated sugar as part of the soil remediation strategy. But strategically planting sugar as an intercrop between perennial trees and letting cattle rotationally graze through that sugarcane. So the key word there is rotationally graze. And so moving the cattle very quickly through a sugarcane feedstock would allow them to, the animal manures would also regenerate the soil. They'll eat back the sugar. When they move on, the sugar will grow again. And it fattens up the cows quite nicely while it's also repairing the soil. How do regenerative farming and permaculture address climate change? It's been shown very clearly that healthy soils sequester carbon and tree crops sequester carbon. So when you have a microbially active, healthy soil, the ability of that soil to hold water increases several fold. When you have tree crops planted in healthy soil, that is sequestering carbon. So the more crops we can put into perennial crops, the more carbon we're going to sequester. It's a very simple equation. Fresh water is critical to this remote island. The Malama Aina report asserts that regenerative agriculture, quote, recharges groundwater and restores hydrological cycles on the land eliminate stormwater discharge of agricultural chemicals and come into compliance with the Clean Water Act and restore stream flows to native habitat and farms in East Maui, end quote. Can you explain how this is accomplished? Why does restoring non-valley watersheds need to be central to any Central Valley farm design? So as we mentioned earlier, when the sugar plantations took the water from the east side of the island, so you have a series of watersheds that come down um, in ravines. They just put a ditch in the middle of that. So anybody below that ditch didn't have access to water anymore. It's been a gigantic fight for a very long time to give Native Hawaiians access to that water again. Some of those waters are starting to open up, and just a couple weeks ago, a group from the Farmers Union went to help open new streamheads 
new spring heads for traditional taro farming, they hadn't been allowed up there in over 100 years. Growing crops in a really dry Central Valley farming equation requires every type of water harvesting strategy that we can use. So that includes, for example, swales and contour, windbreaks, very healthy soil, which has a larger water carrying capacity, and of course, putting things into perennial crops, but also using lots and lots and lots of mulch. And so looking at the combination of all these different water harvesting strategies is really the key to farming success, I think, for that Central Valley. When the mayor refers to farm studies that have done where they're proving up crops, whether they're going to be successful or not, they don't use any of those strategies. They're looking at a very, you know, simply irrigated chemical farming, doing monocrops of maybe avocado orchards. They're not looking at an integrated, diversified ag that takes advantage of all of those different strategies. Rainfall is crucial to island ecology. Maui Tomorrow's report asserts that, quote, streams and springs may return and local rainfall may increase through orographic effects if the Central Valley is designed with the intention to improve the hydrological cycles of the land, end quote. How can regenerative agriculture reduce dependence on irrigation and increase orographic effects, bringing more rainfall? So the orographic effect is when you have a warm, moist air comes across the ocean, hits the mountain, and is forced upwards. That warm, moist air hits the colder air above, it then falls as rain. That mostly happens on the east side of the island. When we look at the island of Kaholawe, which is off the south coast of Maui, when you look at the hillside on Maui that faces that, it used to be completely forested. And when that was forested, there was more rainfall on Kaholawe. They completely denuded that side of the island, and then the rainfall stopped over there. So trees, of course, hold fog and hold moisture and hold water in the soil. The tree roots create a living sponge of plant material that allows us to have these hydrological cycles. Trees are the lungs of the planet. You know, a healthy oak tree in the Pacific Northwest can, on a hot day, will transpire 2,000 gallons of water a day each tree. So when you look at what tree crops do for the hydrological cycle from the deep part of the taproot all the way up to the crown of the tree, it's just moving constant amounts of water through our ecosystems. When you take that away, not only do you not have that living, breathing water cycle, you have nothing holding the soil in place. So you have destroyed that sponge of soil. You've destroyed all of the living things in that root system, all the fungi, all the insects, all the, all the trophic levels of things living in that soil. And then of course, you've taken away the trees themselves which transpire the water. In a swale system, Jeff Lawton talks about by the time you have seven swales within a design, there's a spring coming out at the bottom. So the ability to infiltrate water through this system is significant, and it allows us to start to build that again. In permaculture, we're always looking at the successional strategy, moving towards an end goal, which might be a mature climax food forest, or it might be um, a healthy soil so we can grow row crops. So understanding what the farm wants to do with its end goal is how we design that farm ecosystem 
to mature over time within those goals. And we know that that'll change over time as the tree crops mature, for example, or as climate change is really impacting us at an agricultural level. And I think we can't discount in any way the impacts of climate change. Climate change here is translated as slower trade winds, which means less orographic effect, which means rising sea levels, which means the Central Valley could be underwater. We'd have two islands instead of one. So the buffering strategies for a resilient agriculture are really important in this design. And I think this is an interesting intersection of where permaculture is going right now, is really understanding how to design for climate change buffering. Ancient Hawaiians built earthworks so that fresh water could be captured and used for aquaculture and not run off into the ocean. The Malama Aina report points out that sugar company, quote, HCNS, has dozens of reservoirs across the Central Valley, ranging in size from 1 million gallons to 80 million gallons, end quote. What opportunities exist for freshwater aquaculture in the valley, and what could it look like? That's one of my favorite parts of the report, I have to say, is looking at the infrastructure that we can use and how to modify it into a uh, regenerative agriculture and really profitable agriculture. So the uh, reservoirs, which you know, we're not allowed to go on the land and just go look at them, so we can't see what shape they're in. We know that some of them are leaking, we know that some of them are not, we know that some of them are lined, we know that most of them aren't, so they're all different. It used to be that they would fill those reservoirs up at night to then irrigate the lands from those during the day. Now they use a different system of drip irrigation, or they used to, and then sugar canes over now. So looking at those ponds for aquaculture, for different types of fish, or water chestnuts, or all kinds of uh, aquatic plants for farming, I think is a really exciting opportunity. This is where you start to look at small, profitable farming versus gigantic, unprofitable monoculture. If you were a farmer, or you were someone involved in aquaponics, um, or aquaculture, so aquaponics is when you grow vegetables in water, and aquaculture is when you have fish and vegetables growing in a cycle. So yeah, I think that's a really exciting prospect. And it would, that, that really is contingent on the farmer to decide what they want to do with that resource. Yeah, when I hear permaculture and ponds, I immediately think Sepulzer. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's a resource that we can use. How does regenerative agriculture and permaculture restore habitats and increase biodiversity? Well, when you, I mean, starting in the soil, you know, a handful of healthy soil has more species in it than the entire rainforest. So what we want to do is really get to like a super healthy soil. So from everything else comes from the soil. So the ability to grow diverse crops and to not use chemicals really comes from having a healthy soil. So the regenerative agriculture speaks directly to the soil equation. We're growing soil all the time at the foundation of what we have to do is build a healthy soil. Uh, from there, it's the diversified crops of perennials and annuals. I personally believe that we have to have living genetic banks of diverse plant material. And right now it's looking sort of as a fractal equation. We have one food forest over here, one genetic bank over here. And as these expand, that mosaic starts to grow together. 
definitely want to focus on canoe crops, but people here eat everything. We, we want to eat foods that come from all over the world now. So all of the Asian fruits, I love all the Asian fruits, and I eat cucumbers and I eat all kinds of things that aren't from here. So how do we prioritize canoe crops? How do we facilitate and give as much assistance to local Hawaiians that want to grow traditional crops? And how do we support that? I'm not sure exactly how that works, but I would like to be able to be very proactive working with the Native Hawaiian community, how we can be in service to them so that they can have successful food sovereignty in the equation. And the diversity comes from things like the windbreaks. When you look at our hedgerows or uh, different strategies that allow us to support things within the food chain. Thank you. Thank you. That does it for part one of our interview with permaculture designer Jenny Pell. Stay tuned to the Story Connected podcast for more inspiring stories and ideas, including part two of our interview with Jenny. I find the information she shares in these interviews to be really eye-opening. We'd love to know what you think. Comment on our Facebook page, leave us a review, get in touch, we want to hear from you. And if you want to dive deeper into the ideas in this podcast, you can download and read the Malama Aina Report at futureofmaui.org. Learn more about Jenny Pell and her services at Permaculture Design International. And stay tuned to the Story Connected podcast for more on the series Re-Envision Maui. If you support Story Connective's 501c3 mission and vision of bringing stories of resilience and possibilities to the world, and you would like to help our project, there are many ways you can help us. Please share this piece with friends, family, and coworkers. Subscribe to our podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Story Connective is 100% listener and viewer supported. Please support our crowdfunded project at patreon.com slash storyconnective or by using the Be a Patron button on your Podbean podcast app. Interview by Rebecca Rhapsody and Loxley Clovis at storyconnective.org. Audio recording and production by Loxley Clovis at storyconnective.org. The intro song is Which That Is This by Dr. Turtle, released under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The outro song is by Rebecca Rhapsody. Special thanks to our sponsor Elsa at ellsa.org. The purpose of this audio interview is for nonprofit education, news, and commentary. This interview is released under the Attribution Share Alike Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening to The Story Connective. <laughs>